a brief prayer before we apply ourselves to it now. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning to everybody. It's good to add my greetings to Adam's from earlier on in the service. You're very, very welcome this morning, whatever's brought you along. Um, and uh, some I know here for the first time this morning, you're so welcome. It's really good that, to have you among us and uh, to be applying ourselves at the start of a new sermon series from the first book of Samuel in the Old Testament. Have you ever tried to put up a tent in high winds? I once was involved in trying to put up a marquee on a very blustery West Cumbrian day, and you may know that the wind blows up there, and uh, we constructed the roof um, that had all gone just about okay. And then a big gust of wind lifted the whole roof off the ground and uh, sent it over the wall into the cow field behind, completely buckling all the metal poles, or most of them anyway. It was a total disaster, which actually was quite predictable. Um, God has succeeded. We failed. He has succeeded in establishing his kingdom amid the howling chaos of human history. It is a very bumpy ride, and it always will be, as we're going to see this morning, a very bumpy ride. Now, the first book of Samuel shows us how it happens. It's a remarkable book. We're going to focus on it over the next few spring Sunday mornings, and it's got some of the best-known stories in the whole Bible in 1 Samuel. So it's got, the, uh, it's got the, uh, the, the call of Samuel, it's got the anointing of David, it's got David and Goliath, just about the most famous story in the Bible, or one of them, Saul and the witch of Endor, maybe you know that story, spine-tingling story. But these are more than stories, they are history, and they're more than history, they are prophecy. These are prophetic histories. The events, these events in the lives of God's ancient people reveal the shape of greater events that are yet to come and that will one day shape the whole of history and the whole of eternity. Now we just see that. If you've got 1 Samuel open there from Barbara's reading just a moment ago, look at it. Just contrast chapter 1 verse 1 with chapter 2 verse 10. So chapter 1 verse 1 introduces us to one family in history. We read about it, there was a certain man, a certain, there was a, one, one bloke um, uh, from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim. He had two wives, one called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Okay, one family in history. Then, scroll, run your eyes down to chapter 2, verse 10, and there is a prophecy that will impact every nation on earth. It says there, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn, the strength, of his anointed. That is, of his Messiah. That's what the word anointed means. That's the Hebrew word for the anointed is Messiah. We know that word as well, perhaps better, because it's the same word that the Greeks translated as Christos, from which we get the word Christ. He will exalt his Christ. Hmm. 
The affairs of Elkanah's family around 3,000 years ago have something to do with the global reign of God's anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to it later. But I just want us to be sure, all of us, I want to make sure that all of us know where 1 Samuel fits into the big picture of the Bible's storyline. So centuries earlier, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. That family becomes the nation of Israel. And then God rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt, where they had been slaves, and he brings them into the land that he promised, and they inherit the land. Well, over the next 400 years, the people of Israel, in their land, they fell into a chronic state of spiritual decline. They reject the Lord, and they keep on worshipping idols, false gods. They cast off God's law. Those were the days, they're known in the Bible as the days of the judges. Judges. These judges, they weren't really, um, they weren't the people who wore silk and sat in court. They weren't those sort of judges. They were, they were more like military men and women who were raised up to deliver God's people. And they would usually halt the decline for as long as they lived. But Israel's sin always reared up again when the judge died. The chaos of this era was captured in the withering assessment of the Bible, which says, in those days Israel had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit. That was the days of the judges. Now Samuel, the one who this book is named after, Samuel, he was the last and the greatest of the judges. But more importantly, he's a transition figure because he administers the transition into the next phase of Israel's history, the transformation of this rabble of 12 tribes into the United Kingdom of Israel. Well, chapters 1 and 2 that we're looking at now, they record the events surrounding Samuel's birth. So let's meet Samuel's family. Let's revisit verses 1 and 2 again. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one called Hannah, the other called Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Uh-oh, two wives. Bad news. From the start, um, at the beginning, the, the, the verse in the Bible that defines marriage says, a man singular, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and they will become one flesh. <laughs> singular, one of each. That's the Bible's plan for marriage. But, well, plenty of Old Testament characters, as you may know, ignored that teaching, spectacularly, some of them. And it caused a number of problems. That is an understatement. It was a complete catastrophe on so many levels. And their experience just demonstrates actually why God's way was right from the start. Well, this family, Elkanah's family, has these two wives with him. They basically have this massive polygamous dysfunction. It's known as polyamory these days. And they've sort of tried to redress it in our culture. But that's what it is, polygamy. This dysfunction 
they basically packed it in a suitcase and took it with them wherever they went, including every year to the annual worship festival at Shiloh, which was the, 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 where the tabernacle, God's sort of temporary temple, was located. And they went, they went to every year, um, and unfortunately, family life was a war zone over the most sensitive of issues, which, of course, is that Hannah could not have children, whereas Penina could. Now, there, there are a lot of women um, in the Bible, or marriages at least, where there, there cannot, uh, where children uh, cannot be born, and um, and uh, God intervenes in amazing ways in some of those situations. Think of Sarah or Rachel or Elizabeth. Hannah stands out actually because she's the only one of whom we read. And you can see it there in verses 5 and 6. The narrator says it twice because he, he doesn't want us to miss it. He says, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, that is not how we are to understand the inability to bear children in general. This is very specific. And you think, why? What's going on? Well, childlessness, is, of course, is, a, is an agonizing issue in every generation. You, very, you may know that yourself. What's striking, actually, in the Bible is that on, on this particular difficulty, the Lord seems to draw so close to people. The Lord seems to have a special heart for people in this circumstance and to draw especially close to them. May you know that. Those you know and love who are experiencing this struggle, may they know that. He does. He draws very, very close if, if, if we ask him. But Hannah's situation was, was unique because under the terms of the Old Testament, we, we now live under the terms of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Under the terms of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, um, children and the production of children were a token of God's blessing for obedience. Um, barrenness was a sign of the opposite, of disobedience and judgment. That is not how it is now. Can I be very clear? That is not how it is now. But under that temporary arrangement of the Old Testament, that is how it, 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 was, it was to be viewed. And so think of how Hannah must have felt and looked as someone who was under the displeasure of God. Now, can you imagine, even if Penina had been a kind of, you know, lovely, beautiful, um, you know, beautiful-souled, gentle spirit to live with, it still would have been very hard for Hannah to cope with, very hard, uh, as all you know, Hannah's, uh, Penina's children sat round the table. And, um, but imagine, I mean, Penina is an absolute emotional thug. I mean, but the cruelty of this woman beggars belief. Um, it's, so verses 6 and 7, let me just read those. It says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, um, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. It's a terrible situation, awful. What did Elkanah do about this, this man who had taken two wives? Well, I mean, this is another element of the dysfunction of the whole situation. He loved Hannah more than he loved Penina. And he said, he said, but I love you more, as though that would console her, which doesn't sound, which is not terribly helpful, really. It just adds to the dysfunction. 
Nothing could change the fact that the annual trip to worship at Shiloh was a reminder to Hannah that God was apparently against her and that she, she shared a very weak man with a very poisonous but extremely fertile snake. That was her life. It was horrible. Now, it's really interesting the way Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew language is a beautiful language for storytelling. And one of the lovely things about this passage is that, I love this detail, four times in the passage uh, we read that Hannah wept. That verb, to weep, is associated with Hannah four times. And we might think, gosh, is that what defines Hannah? Hannah wept. No, it doesn't. Because there is a verb in the Hebrew telling which appears five times. Do you know what the verb is? The word is, it's Hannah, not wept, but Hannah prayed. Very significant. Five times we are told Hannah prayed. So one evening, Peninnah is serving up another bout of emotional abuse. And Hannah rushes out of the room, heads for the tabernacle, where she pours out her heart to the Lord in front of Eli, the elderly high priest. Uh, Verse 11 is her prayer. She says, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. Is she bargaining with God? Sort of. It's one of those interesting ones. You can chew on it later if you like. But kind of not really as well because, of course, the son she's asking for is not for her. She's saying he's going to be yours, Lord. This child is yours. He's going to belong to God. What's all that about the uncut hair? You know, no razor will be used on his head. Why is he going to be a shaggy man? Well, uncut hair was a sign of dedication to God. It was according to the regulations of what is known in the law of Moses as the Nazarite vow. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6, if you want, later on. The Nazarite vow. And so the the point was the Nazarite was dedicated to God. This longed-for child is going to be God's. But, I mean, poor Hannah. Hannah already looks like she's, she's under God's displeasure. And now, what happens now? She's misunderstood again. What does Eli think as he sees that she's there in the temple and she's pouring her heart out, her lips are moving You can just imagine her. And Eli, what does he think? Oi, you drunk. Give up your, give up your booze. Well, imagine that from the high priest of Israel as you're there. Poor Anna. Again, verse 14. How long will you keep getting drunk, says Eli? Get rid of your wine. Judged and misunderstood. Well, Hannah explains. Eli then blesses her. She worships and goes home to make a baby. And nine months later, Samuel, the miracle child, is born. Samuel, uh, it was the perfect name for a baby, born in direct answer to prayer. Because in Hebrew, it sounds like um, heard by God. Heard by God. And then after a few years, it's time for Hannah to fulfill her vow. Samuel is delivered um, to Eli to serve the Lord at Shiloh. He goes and lives there, and, uh, which would have been quite a thing for little Samuel at the age of, I don't know, when do they, when do they weaned them in that culture? I don't know, maybe three or four. Off he went. Bye, Samuel. You're going to be a lay assistant now at, at, at the tabernacle. Bye. 
extraordinary. But the contrast for Hannah is so extreme, isn't it? Before, she's childless, she's persecuted, it looks like God is against her. Now, she's the mother of a servant of God. God unambiguously approves her, and her rival is not even mentioned again. We never hear of Peninnah again. Now, if we ended our study at the end of chapter 1, what would the big lesson be? I think the big lesson would be about prayer, though we must pray. If it feels like God is against us. If you're weeping four times, pray five. Prayer. Pray even when it feels like God is against us. When the situation seems hopeless, pray and keep asking. That would be the message if we were ending our study at chapter one. But we're not. We're running it through into chapter two. Hannah wants us to keep reading into chapter two. Because she wants us to understand that there is much more to the story than meets the eye. Because in chapters two and uh, chapter two, the first few verses there, that song, um, she shows us that her personal story is actually part of a much, much bigger story. So she starts with the immediate facts. Verse one, it's a, it's a wonderful song. Um, I don't know the tune, but um, maybe you could make one up later. Verse one, Hannah prayed and said, my soul rejoices in the Lord. By the way, this is, of course, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, was influenced by this song in her song after, the, uh, after she was pregnant with, with the baby Jesus. So my soul rejoices, my heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord, in the Lord, my horn, that is my strength, my case, my cause, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. So those are the facts. She has, uh, the Lord has vindicated her over and over the world. But the immediate facts of her story fit a bigger pattern because her experience is typical of the way God establishes his kingdom. It's typical. Three characteristics stand out. Let me just talk, talk, talk you through them as, as we consider this song. First of all, the Lord hates pride. He hates it. Verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. So Penina, um, along with the basic instinct of this world, says essentially, I believe that I am marvellous. And as she looked at her children around the table, she thought, there you go, there's the evidence. Aren't I wonderful? That was Penina's personal creed. And the insults towards Hannah are just, are just spewing out of the overflow pipe of a heart that is just brimming with this pride, self-assertion, me, what I am, and look at, look at me, pride. And God, the, the scriptures reveal so clearly again and again and again, including in this song, he knows pride, he weighs it, he hates it, he will destroy it, and as a result, here's the second thing. So the Lord hates pride, here's the second thing. As a result, the Lord reverses human ranks. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. You know, high rank so often goes to the human head, doesn't it? So often. 
the Lord will not tolerate it. He will not tolerate pride for long. And so he delights to bring down those who exalt themselves. It's just like Mary's song, isn't it, as well, from the, the, the Magnificat, the song of Mary. Just like it, same theme. He loves to exalt, though, bring down those who exalt themselves and to raise up those the world puts down. He will do it in the final judgment. It will happen right across the piece with the great reversal of final judgment. He sometimes does it beforehand as well, just to keep us alert. This is the way God's kingdom is established. It does not tend to take root among the elite. The elite who have got far too much to boast about, whether that's money or education or influence. After all, just think about it. Our king, he had never been, he had been nowhere near the ancient equivalent of an institution of higher education. He didn't have a degree. Oh. Well, so what? He didn't, he didn't own anything. And he was rejected as a criminal, as a crucified outsider, a reject. Hannah wouldn't have been surprised because that's how God's kingdom comes. It's established as God reverses human ranks and as he lifts up the humble and as he puts down the proud. So Hannah, again, wouldn't have been surprised at Paul's comment in that highly cosmopolitan city of Corinth. Paul says, not many of you in the church were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. So, I mean, I think a great example is the, the growth of the church in countries like India, for example. Where are, where are people becoming believers in huge numbers across India? It's not from the highly educated upper classes. That's not because they're more intelligent. Not at all. It's because people are coming from the untouchables. <laughs> the ones at the bottom are coming. As God raises up into his kingdom the humble. So, God hates pride. He reverses human ranks. Here's the third thing. How does God establish his kingdom he will raise up his Messiah from the dust. He will raise his Messiah from the dust. I said that 1 Samuel uh, prophesies the future of the world. Well, it's time to expand the picture of this family story from ancient Israel to the eternal future of God's kingdom because God is revealing through this story, he's revealing the way in which he works. He's revealing the very principles that establish the kingdom of God. They're the same principles that raised Hannah up and cast Peninnah down. Those very principles are going to fix the future of the planet. Because, as Hannah knows, final global judgment is coming. Look at verse 10. Very strong. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That is historic, universal judgment. In this judgment, the proud of every nation will be cast down, just like Peninnah was. 
But just as God raised up Hannah, he's going to raise up, verse 10, last bit of verse 10, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, hang on a minute. Do you know your Bible history? You might be scratching your head at the moment. That's strange. Because at this point in Israel's history, Israel had no king. There is no king at this point. Um, Hannah's son, Samuel, is going to anoint the first king, Saul, and, you know, several decades later. There is no king. So who's Hannah talking about? He will exalt his king. She is talking about a future king. She calls him the anointed one. In Hebrew, Messiah. In Greek, Christ. Ultimately, she's talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And of course, Hannah's story teaches us exactly the shape of Messiah's story, of Jesus' story. Because if Peninnah represents the proud who are to be humbled, Hannah represents the Christ, the Messiah, who is humble, who is suspected of being an outsider, who is maligned, who is misunderstood, who is suspected of being under God's judgment and outside his blessing, and yet who is raised up and vindicated. That's Hannah's story. That's Jesus' story. That is the way of the kingdom of God. Hannah's story is typical of how God's kingdom comes in this proud world. We see the same pattern actually later in the first book of Samuel um, through the story of King David. You may remember if you know the story and if you don't you'll learn it, you'll learn it over the next few weeks. He is hounded as a traitor by proud King Saul but God raises him triumph. And uh, it's supremely there in Jesus, the crucified outsider, raised up to reign as judge and saviour. But I hope that we can recognise that this is a pattern that actually we will experience in the church as well. And in our own lives, even if we're slow learners, we've got to understand that God's kingdom never comes in ways that are obvious to this proud world. We tend to think, God, you should lead us in strength. You should lead us in obvious power. You should vindicate us in ways that it's obvious that we're your people and that we, uh, that, that, that we follow Christ and that Christ is, is, is the way. But that's not God's way. Very often, he leads us forward in weakness. He leads us forward through misunderstanding. He leads the church forward often through persecution. He leads the church forward through tears. See, remember, it was the Lord who had closed Hannah's womb for that time. Not to destroy her, but to lead her upwards in the one safe spiritual route to God, which is the route of humility. That is the only safe way into the kingdom of God. Because if we don't, if we are not led that way, if we are led instead by the way of human strength and accomplishment and power, then what will happen is that pride will flare up within us and we will provoke the, the judgment of God. 
That's the reality. And so God must lead us the way of humility and the way of weakness. God works his strength in our weakness. That's a great theme, isn't it, of the, the Apostle Paul. He works his healing through our tears. He achieves his purpose through our desperate prayers. His blessing through what seems sometimes like curse. He finds his way forward through our dead ends. And so something in our heart, we don't like it that way. We think, why can't it be more straightforward, Lord? This is because I hate pride. And I dwell with the humble. And therefore, I'm going to work in your weakness. It's quite a sobering message, actually. But it's a glorious message. Because this is the way of God's kingdom. This is the way of victory. God is training our eyes to see and to perceive where he's really at work when where he isn't. That's what partly what 1 Samuel is there to do, is to train us to see where God is at work and to recognize the pattern of the kingdom. This is the way of Hannah. It's the way of Jesus. And we need to understand that it's the way we too will walk. Let's pray. Father God, some of us are up against great, the great sense of our own weakness and frustrated at our uh, struggles and we want to be shot of them. Of course we do and that's not wrong in one sense. But in another sense, help us to live with the pattern of Hannah with the pattern of Christ, with the pattern of the kingdom. And we pray that as we do so, walking in humility, we would learn what it is to receive true power, true strength from the Spirit of Christ, because we pray it in his name. Amen.